Welcome to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast. I'm Michael Hainsworth. It was the first snow day of 2019, and Toronto had largely ground to a halt. As the C.D. Howe Institute set the tables for a luncheon with the Minister of Innovation, Science and Economic Development, there were fears of empty seats. And if the minister did show, would he be the only one present? Uh, thank you very much for the warm welcome. Thank you all for being here. I'm a bit surprised. My daughters, uh, Nanki, who is 11, Kirpa, who's 8, are missing school because schools are closed. And so they turned to me this morning saying, hey, cool, you're staying home with us. I said, no, I'm attending this event, and it's great to see such a fabulous uh, turnout this morning. And it really is a privilege to be here among some of the country's most innovative entrepreneurs and thinkers as well. It was a packed house because those innovative entrepreneurs and thinkers from finance to telecommunications and everything in between wanted to hear what the Honorable Navdeep Baines had to report on a specific 2017 federal government budget pledge. The Innovation and Skills Plan is an ambitious effort to punch above Canada's weight. It aims to grow the country's goods and services exports by 30% within the next six years and increase the clean technology sector's contribution. It aims to double the number of high-growth companies by 2025 from 14,000 to 28,000 with a focus on digital, clean tech, and healthcare. And it looks to expand job training. Why? Export-intensive industries pay more than those that don't on average 50% more, according to the ministry. I had a chance to grab the minister for a 10-minute chat as he made that mad dash to his next snowbound appearance. But first, he started his report by pointing out the rising anxiety levels of middle-class Canadians today. Where does this anxiety come from? It comes from a world where it took 76 years for the telephone to make it to the home of 50 million people and it only took Twitter two years. It comes from the welder who uh, crosses a robot cleaning up a store aisle and wonders, when will it be able to do my job? And it comes from the parent, and I can relate to this, who discovers the reason their child doesn't do her homework anymore because their rural internet connectivity simply doesn't support the homework she's been given. And I've heard this story time in and time again from so many people I've met in rural communities across Canada. So where does this anxiety come from? It comes from the scope and speed of technological economic change across the developed world. So in facing uh, this challenge, we can either put our head in the sand or invest in Canadians, their futures, their jobs, and their businesses to make sure these, these changes fundamentally improve their lives. You know, some people would have us just get out of the way and just kind of wish things would happen. But do you think China is getting out of the way? No, they're actively getting involved, making substantial investments in artificial intelligence, historic investments in artificial intelligence. Do you think Germany is getting out of the way? No, it's redoubling its effort on Industry 4.0, investing more through their Fraunhofer Institutes. Do you think South Korea is getting out of the way? No, they're making strategic and targeted investments and playing a global leadership role when it comes to clean technology. So we all know 
Canada has emerged as a leader in areas like artificial intelligence, clean technology, and quantum computing because of the foresight we had to support these industries when they were at their very beginning. The very opposite of putting our heads in the sand and sitting on our hands. Canada's investments in AI in the 1980s successfully attracted world-class researchers, the researchers that we brag about today, and provided the foundation for Canada's leadership in the sector today. And, you know, when I was named to my current position in 2015 and my mandate letter was made public, my role was very clear. My focus, focus was very clear. I wanted to make sure that we built an economy that worked for everyone. So let me break that down, because I think it's really important for this room and for Canadians. First, we need an economy that works, period. Second, it must work for everyone. So our plan, as mentioned earlier, was really a reflection of engaging Canadians and businesses and people from coast to coast to coast. And we came forward with a plan, the Innovation and Skills Plan, which supports entrepreneurs at all points along the innovation continuum and Canadians at every stage of their life. So, as I mentioned, the solution is very clear. We need an economy that works. When we formed government, we were coming out of a second recession in a decade, a decade during which the average growth rate was stumbling and barely at 1%, and the unemployment rate was well above 7%. So to build the Innovation and Skills Plan, we first sat down with entrepreneurs and innovators and business leaders to find out what they needed. What were their pain points? What were their concerns? What were their issues? And how could we help them succeed to create good quality middle class jobs? And they identified a number of areas for us. For example, and this is not shocking, but again, it highlights the number one concern that they raised. Access to skilled labor. This was the number one issue I heard from every business. Access to capital, of course, and access to markets. And we knew we needed to reverse the troubling trend of underinvestments in research and development. This is an area where Canada ranks 22 out of 34 OECD countries when it comes to business investment and research and development. Because it's very important that we realize that previous governments made investments. They put forward tax credits, but that really hadn't changed the fundamental outlook for the investments in research and development. So the report, ladies and gentlemen, details how we tackled each challenge along the innovation continuum. We looked at where the opportunities were and where the gaps were. And let me give you a few examples that demonstrate how we turned the corner. And that's again reflected in some of the figures that have been presented to you. So let's talk about the first issue, which is very important. Like I said, the number one issue that businesses have raised time and time again. And that's people. And that's absolutely, by the way, central to our innovation agenda. It's people-centric, and it's focused on making sure that people have the ability to reach their potential. CEO, CEO after CEO told me the same thing. I said to them, you know, why are you investing in Canada? What is the key reason for your investments in Canada? And they would tell me, without any hesitation, that it was your skilled and talented workforce. And it was reinforced most recently when I went to Davos, and we announced two significant investments, one by Nokia and one by Siemens. And I spoke to the CEOs and senior team, and I said, again, why are you investing in Canada? These are substantial and significant 
investments in Canada. And they said, again, got an incredibly talented, diverse workforce. And it's worth noting, this is a point of pride. 56.7% of Canadians between the ages of 24 to 65 have a post-secondary education, the highest amongst the OECD countries. So that is a point of pride. Then how then could it also be seen as an impediment to growth? The more our economy becomes digital and data-driven, the more we need skills. We need Canadians to have the necessary skills to thrive in such an economy. You know, this is a number that, again, many of you know, but Canadians don't fully appreciate. There is expected to be an unmet need of 216,000 STEM jobs by 2021. So just in a few years, there's these so many jobs that will exist in the market that currently exist where they can't find the right people and the right skill sets. So on that hand, we, for example, took an initiative forward. We created 10,000 paid internships through MyTax to help Canadian students better prepare for the jobs of today, but also for the jobs of tomorrow. And on the other hand, for those companies who needed to pull some of their talent from outside the country, because we recognize we don't have a monopoly on good ideas, that we need to genuinely have access to global talent, we created the Global Skills Strategy. And under this program, companies can get someone from anywhere around the world within a matter of two weeks. That's the visa processing time. And we've issued thousands of visas. And it's important to note, because this is an issue that comes often by, is raised often by Canadians, Look, we have so many incredibly talented Canadians coming through our academic institutions, and they end up leaving Canada and going to the United States for better job opportunities. But guess what? Of the visas that we issued, 25% of those visas were for Americans. Americans wanted to come to Canada and work here. So that just demonstrates, again, the value proposition that we have. So I think it's also important to note that it's not great uh, to have only access to global talent, but how does it benefit Canadians? In fact, for every worker who made it to Canada under this program, more than 10 jobs, more than 10 Canadian jobs are created. So for every one visa that was issued, it generated 10 Canadian jobs. So again, this is immigration policy working to benefit Canadians, creating jobs and opportunities. And good thing, Canada was recently ranked sixth in the world in attracting talent and the only non-European country in the top 10. Again, remember, we're not focused on building walls in this country. We are genuinely open to welcoming people to make sure that we create an economy that works for everyone. We're facilita facilitating this by providing simple and coordinated support to Canadian entrepreneurs. And again, this reflects another point that was raised. So remember I mentioned skills as the number one issue, and that's highlighted in the report. The second one, and another pain point, was access to capital. And we have a coordinated approach. If you consider that it's quicker to start a business in Canada than any other G7 country, you'll understand why Forbes ranks Canada as a top country in the world to do business. So again, we understand and we've simplified our programs. My Deputy Minister John Nubley is here, uh, first day back after surgery, so I'm glad to see him here. Um, again, I didn't want to put you on the spot there, John. <laughs> but he took 95 programs through our horizontal, horizontal program review and we've now simplified it to 32 programs. Again, making it easier for businesses. But it's also about capital as well. And let me highlight one specific example. 
the Venture Capital Catalyst Initiative. It's called VCCI, one of many, many thousand acronyms that we have in government. Simply put, it means we're turning a $450 million investment in early stage venture capital, the fuel for growing young companies into what we expect to be a $1.5 billion pool of funding. And this initiative will support Canadian firms in clean technology and other high growth industries. Again, it's really important to note that this particular initiative, along with some of the other funding, will help companies, particularly in late stage financing. And we're focused on the future through initiatives like VCCI, but we also recognize that older, more established companies are the bedrock of our economy. So it's not about picking one sector or one region, it's about making sure that we have a coordinated, collaborative, inclusive process. That's why we're also investing in industry leaders like CAE, which makes training simulators for pilots and doctors. It's an important market niche, when you're performing life-saving surgery or piloting a fully loaded passenger jet, there's really no room for mistakes. So thanks to our investment, CAE will create 400 new engineering and manufacturing jobs in the coming years, as well as provide 1,700 employees with new digital skills and training that they need. The end result will be a more technologically advanced workforce that continues to deliver the cutting edge simulations that pilots and surgeons depend on to keep Canadians and people around the world safe and healthy. And there are signs investors trust what we're doing. So this is not simply about government programming. This is what we're seeing and hearing directly from investors. 2018 was the best year for venture capital financing in Canada since since uh, this guy named Jean Chrétien, I think, in the early 2000s. $4.6 billion worth of investments in venture capital. Again, focusing on late-stage companies. Another uh, area, again, as companies mentioned as a pain point, was market access. So capital, of course, financing, and market access. Another competitive advantage for Canadian companies is our unmatched access to markets from Asia-Pacific, Europe, and of course, North America. And thanks to the excellent work of my friends Christia Freeland, Jim Carr, and Francois-Philippe Champagne, among others, and of course, conservatives as well, by the way, all hands on deck. I want to acknowledge individuals like Brian Marooney, James Moore, Rona Ambrose, who all worked diligently and in a collaborative fashion for the new NAFTA. And bottom line is, we're the only G7 country in the world that has a free trade agreement with other G7 nations. We're getting preferential access to almost two-thirds of the global economy. Now, with our trade commissioner services, we're helping Canadian companies enter new markets as well. So it's not simply about getting free trade agreements. It's not simply about building these bridges to these markets. It's making sure that people actually take advantage of these trade agreements, that they actually enter those markets that our products and services can compete in other jurisdictions as well. And that's very important because one in five jobs in Canada is tied to exports. And I can tell you right now, these export jobs are critical because they pay, on average, 14% more in terms of wages to their employees than other jobs. So these are good quality middle-class jobs. Finally, um, ladies and gentlemen, we needed businesses to step up with their investments in research and development because we know that businesses that do invest in R&D adapt better to changing economic conditions, innovations in their field, 
and of course the new disruptive business models that are emerging. So to deal with that issue, there's many different areas that we focus on, I'm gonna highlight one. We created the Strategic Innovation Fund to do, do that, to unlock this money for research and development. We've reached 31 agreements, totaling, eight, totaling $800 million. And these contributions have brought forward $8.1 billion worth of additional investments that we've been able to leverage, of which $6.5 billion will go towards new research and development funding over the next 10 years. So clearly, again, focused on research and development to make sure we go from 22 to a top 10 in terms of R&D. And the benefits, many of you know, is absolutely essential to our economy. In the auto sector, for example, I want to highlight this point as well. The news coming out of Oshawa was devastating. But it doesn't negate the fact that with investments in Honda, Ford, Linamar, Toyota, and our focus on building the car of the future here in Canada, we reversed the trend of job losses. And speaking of cars and engines, the superclusters are expected to supercharge our economy in the next 10 years as well and deal with that research and development issue. They are set to become five major engines of innovation and job production across the country and expected again to create 50,000 jobs. Because it's very difficult to explain to people what a supercluster is. But it's a job magnet. It's about opportunities, not only for us, but for future generations. And they illustrate that innovation policy doesn't often deliver results overnight. That this initiative will take a few years for us to really see the meaningful benefits. In this case, for example, we had to negotiate governance structures. And I wanted to highlight this because some have asked me, what was the reason why it took a bit of time to get this up and running? We had to negotiate strong governance structures to deal with issues like intellectual property and data policies that serve the interests of all Canadians. Because we want to see that IP in Canada. We want to see the benefits of that IP in data in Canada. And we want to make sure that we're transparent and accountable to all Canadians who are part of this billion-dollar investment. And this will ultimately benefit Canadians, ensure that we get that return on investment. And it will ensure that small and medium-sized businesses can participate alongside large anchor firms as well. So, this is something the Deputy Minister and I talked about. It's not simply about the large companies benefiting. Of the 450 companies that initially put forward these proposals that were selected, 350 were small businesses. It's about making sure we strengthen that supply chain to make sure that post-secondary institutions and government, government partners really get that benefit to help companies scale and grow. And I'm looking forward to announcing the first series on these projects very, very soon. We need to focus on, again, training our workers and retraining our workers and teaching our kids the skills of today and make sure that they're set up for success down the road as well. And one particular program that I want to highlight that speaks to that is coding. Since this December, one million kids have learned how to code because of investments that we've made. And we've taught thousands and thousands of teachers across the country the ability to teach coding for years to come as well. And in a country as vast and sparsely populated as Canada, we're connecting more people to high-speed internet as well. 900 communities now have access to fiber to the institute, access to high-speed internet. You know why that's important? Because in urban Canada, 100% of our communities have access to high-speed. In rural Canada, only 40% of people have access to high-speed internet. So, in the words of President Jed Barlett. 
what's next? Well, when I look to the future, I see the technological transformation only accelerating. We're not going to uh, go back to those uh, flip phones anytime soon. So then what does success actually look like? And the Prime Minister asked me about this as well. And I said, it's success, Prime Minister, is our economy, economy again, will be working for everyone. It'll be producing 10 to 20 Shopify's. And we look like we're on our way. If you look at last year, for example, there was a report that was issued. There are over 28 companies in Canada called Narwhals that are now set up for success to become unicorns. So in plain language, these companies are remaining in Canada, are growing in Canada to become billion-dollar companies that will create numerous opportunities for Canadians as well. Canadians should have reason for optimism in these changing economic times because they're inherently adaptive. We're very adaptive. We're very competitive and we are very innovative. In fact, this is the reason why we will succeed going forward. So let us partner together, business leaders, innovators, governments, thinkers, let us partner together to compete, not only in Canada, but on the world stage as well. Let us partner together to turn Canadian ideas into global successes. Let us partner together to build an economy that works for everyone. And let us partner together to build a nation of innovators. Because if we believe in Canadians, Canadians will believe in their futures. Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. Minister, for joining us, by the way. Well, thank you very much for having me. Tell me about the need for a major redesign of innovation policy in this country. Well, why? You even referenced back in the 1980s, we threw a ton of money at this nascent technology called artificial intelligence, and now Canada is a world leader on that. Well, you pretty much answered the question. It's about making strategic investments to make sure that Canada continues to play a leadership role when it comes to innovation. But we've been very clear that we want to create a culture of innovation. We want to create a nation of innovators, but we got to make strategic investments. We can't stick our head in the sand and just expect things to happen on their own. Other countries are making investments. Other jurisdictions, I've highlighted China, for example, in artificial intelligence. The UK has this catalyst initiative where they're bringing government and small businesses together along with academic researchers. You see this in Germany with their Fraunhofer Institutes. You see this in Israel, in South Korea. So why not Canada? We're competing with other jurisdictions. We want to be thoughtful to make sure that we create opportunities, not in the short term, but long term as well. What do you target? Well, it's really, first of all, people. I mean, if you look at our report, uh, we're focused on the fact that this new smart industrial policy called the Innovation and Skills Plan is focused on investing in people without the lifelong learning, without the skills, without the retraining, without the opportunities that people need to succeed. We can't create the economic growth, the innovations, the ideas. We can't really feel that curiosity. So this report highlights the significant investments we made in science, for example, $4 billion to make sure that we continue to lead in terms of publications in science, but also how to commercialize those ideas so Canadians can benefit. We introduced the first national intellectual property strategy to make sure that those ideas that are being commercialized, that those benefits remain in Canada. So that's really the focal point of our report, really focusing on people and skills and talent and lifelong learning. Skills retraining is a long tail solution to a problem that exists today. How do you sell something that really won't reap the rewards for years down the road? Well, we have turned the corner in some areas. Uh, for example, we're seeing the, the light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to skills. 
uh, coding. One million kids can code now because of the investments that we have made and we're setting them up for success. So that's a short-term result. Using our immigration policies to attract some of the best global talent to create more Canadian jobs. So, so for every one visa that we've issued under the global skills strategy, it actually creates at minimum 10 Canadian jobs. And we've issued thousands of visas. So if you look at the macroeconomic condition, 3% growth rate, so versus 1% since we got our mandate, so three times the growth rate in terms of our GDP. The job numbers, we are unemployment rate at 7.1% when we formed government. Today we're at 5.8%. 900,000 new jobs have been created, mostly full-time jobs. That didn't happen by accident. That's a reflection of Canadians stepping up, global conditions, but also economic programs and policies that our government put forward on infrastructure, on trade, on immigration, and on innovation as well. Uh, in that visa program, I was fascinated that you said that one in four of those visas came from an American. Yeah, well, you know, some of the challenges that I recall growing up in Canada, dealing with my peers as well when we graduated from university, was that they would go to the U.S. for better job opportunities, particularly in the innovative tech area. Many of those students would go to the U.S. and say, look, I want to work for a large multinational. Now what we're seeing is because of Canada's brand, because of the economic opportunities, because of the society that we've built, which is very open and inclusive and reflects diversity and also promotes economic opportunities for individuals, many Americans are now want to come and work in Canada. And that's a global trend. We're seeing many people from other parts of the world that want to come to Canada. We are open to trade. We are open to investment. And we're definitely open to people. The U.S. president just announced an artificial intelligence initiative. How do we, as the mouse next to the elephant, ensure that they don't roll over on us in what is going to be and is already one of the most important technologies of the 21st century? Well, we already have a leadership role. We have household names like Jeffrey Hinton, Yashua Bangio, Rickson, who've done tremendous work in machine learning within artificial intelligence that's allowed us to attract some of the best global talent. We put forward a pan-Canadian artificial intelligence strategy a few years ago. $125 million investment to attract some of the best researchers. So as the U.S. is focusing on this, and most recently they highlighted that a few weeks ago, we've been working on this for several years now and building on the success from the 80s. So we have a leadership role. We're going to continue to leverage our open immigration policies, continue to fund basic science and research and artificial intelligence, which we believe will create more economic opportunities as well in Canada. You don't think that them being 10 times our size means they won't run roughshod over us? No, no doubt that their size presents an opportunity for them, but we're also being very thoughtful about other related issues to artificial intelligence, for example. Say, take data, for example. Uh, if you want artificial intelligence to succeed, you want to see the economic benefits, you want to see the commercial benefits, you need lots of data. In order to have lots of data, you need to have public trust. People need to be confident about who has that data, their privacy concerns, data ownership, data portability. And we're coming forward with a data and digital strategy to make sure that we deal with those issues of trust. So I think if you combine that effort with what we've already invested in basic science and research and the fact that we have an ecosystem of over 700 AI companies, we're in a unique position to differentiate ourselves versus the U.S. and, say, for example, the Chinese. Well, what about Europe? I, I think about your data privacy initiative plans, and the European Union has already done that with GDPR. Why not just copy and paste? Well, we want to make sure that any initiative we do come forward, and it's much more than just simply GDPR. Uh, that's one aspect to the data strategy. We want to make sure we're interoperable. 
that we don't duplicate efforts, that we make it easier for businesses and for consumers and for citizens. Uh, but it's much more than that. It's about uh, making sure that we look at issues like data trusts. How do we generate economic value and social value from data? How do we make sure that people have the right digital skills? I talked about that as well. How do we make sure that companies in Canada have strong digital and data-related policies to take advantage? For example, in data, 90% of the data that we see today was generated in the last two years. So think about that. The computers have been around since the 80s, personal computers, and all the data has been generated. The last two years, 90% of that data has been generated, and only 0.5% of the data is actually being used. So the potential is enormous. So how do we unlock that economic opportunity and innovation for small businesses? So long story short, GDPR is very important. Trust is very important. Resource skills and really unleashing the economic potential for data in Canada. While I was live streaming some of the facts and figures, um, I got a, a tweet back or a clap back, as the case may be, <laughs> uh, on your behalf uh, from someone saying, it's all well and good you throw a, a dollar at something, but how do you measure success? Success uh, are different way, ways of looking at it. From our perspective, are we dealing with that anxiety that Canadians are facing? Are, are we dealing with the concerns that they're facing about their kids and grandkids? Uh, are we creating economic opportunities? So do we see growth and jobs? Macro, those are really important indicators. I talked about our track record in the past three and a half years. But we're really looking at how do we make sure that we have companies that can stay and grow in Canada. So the Prime Minister said to me, what does success look like? And I said it would be great if we had 10 to 20 Shopify's in Canada, large international companies located in Canada. So that's one example. So there's many. How long before we get 10 or 20 more Shopify's? So we're on our way. That's why I said we've turned the corner. Uh, we're seeing progress. Uh, there's a report that came out that identified that we've doubled the number of companies from 14 to 28 that are well on their way to become billion-dollar companies. Those are the Norwals you were referencing. <laughs> That's right. right. But unicorns. But bottom line is, if you're a Canadian listening to this, it's a, a company that has the ability to become a billion-dollar company. So a large company employing a lot of people, doing a lot of research and development. So if you've got kids in school, you know that they don't have to go to the United States, to Asia, or to Europe for good economic opportunities. Is there a role of, of foreign investment in Canada's innovation sector? Uh, and if there is, how do we ensure that we don't run into national security issues? So absolutely, we are not an island. Uh, we cannot assume that we can close our borders off and rely on our domestic market and domestic capital to help our companies scale. We need international expertise, international customers, and international investments. And this is always going to be, you know, in terms of, so I'll take Huawei, for example, that issue has come up recently. We will proceed in a manner that looks at, yes, we're open to business, we want to engage, but we will always make a decision that's in the best uh, interests of Canadians when it comes to their security and their safety as well. And we've always found that balance in the past and we'll continue to address those issues going forward as well. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me. And with that, the 41-year-old Minister of Innovation, Science and Economic Development, former auto industry executive and father of two housebound girls, turned up his coat and braved the Toronto blizzard once more. February 26th, the C.D. Howe Institute plays host to a roundtable on the opportunity for corporations, government, and philanthropists to make an impact on society with their investments. With Malcolm Burroughs of Scotia Wealth Management, Adam Jagalewski of the Mars Discovery District, and Bill Young of Social Capital Partners. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay warm.